how it lights my path, how it guides my way. Through August, we're thinking about going deeper into the Father's heart. So last week we thought about the Father's provision, but this morning we're going to think about Father's forgiveness. So I'm just going to pray for him um, as he gets things ready. We'll hear God's word from him. So Lord Jesus, we just want to thank you so much. We thank you for the gift that he is to your body. We thank you for his love for God's people and his love for you. And I just pray, Lord, that you will fill them afresh now with your Holy Spirit. And may the words that he brings really speak to our hearts, Lord, that each one of us knows we've heard a word from heaven this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me, guys. It is a real pleasure to be here. Do you know, this week I've been deemed a medical mystery. (laughs) So for the last two months or so, I've had Um, some swelling in my ankles, my feet and my legs and I've been in and out of the GP, in and out of hospital and they haven't been able to figure out what's been going on. And so the Monday after Revive, I went to the A&E and after the doctor told me that I shouldn't be here because it's not an emergency, he then said, but we're going to figure out what this is. And so he proceeded to run a load of thorough checks, checking off bit by bit what it could not be. And so we started with the most important, the heart. He said, it can't be the heart, your health, your age, this isn't a heart thing. Next, the kidney. Done a urine test, checked the protein, not the kidney. Next, the liver, and so on and so on. And we work our way through this list until eventually we run out of his expertise and he sends me to another clinic um, next week. (laughs) The reason I'm telling you this is because sometimes these kind of diagnostics can be helpful in our Christian lives. So if you were to come to me and you were to say to me, Kadeem, I haven't been experiencing much joy in my Christian life. Or over the last couple of years, I haven't seen much transformation in my life. I haven't seen myself becoming particularly Christ-like. Then I would be thinking through a kind of diagnostics. And one of the first things that I would think if that was your experience, was that maybe you haven't experienced, lay held of, known for yourself, the Father's forgiveness. I think that's probably one of the first things up there that I would want to know. And just to continue the analogy, suppose that was right. And suppose you ask me to ask me, why is that the case? Why haven't I lay held of the Father's forgiveness? One of the first things I would think through is that maybe you haven't grasped a particular tension. A particular tension that exists within who God is. And that is that on the one hand, God is a God who hates sin and justly punishes it. And on the other hand, he is a God who is full of mercy and compassion for humanity and longs to forgive sin. Do you see the tension there? And sometimes when we don't really lay hold or don't really get the balance of this tension, we can end up not properly grasping God's forgiveness for ourselves. 
See, if we lean too far on this side, then we might know the, the, the weight of our sin, but it crushes us because we don't know God's mercy and forgiveness for us. If we lay too far on this side, then we don't ever really experience true forgiveness because it's light, it's frivolous, it's something that isn't really that weighty or important. We need to hold both rightly if we want to grasp for ourselves and experience the joy of knowing the Father's forgiveness. Do you know, the Bible is beautifully complex, isn't it? It's this amazing, complex story written by different people at different times in different places, all interwoven together somehow to tell one story. And this story helps us to know God. And it's beautiful because we read this story and we can really know him. But I bet most of you are like me and sometimes you wish the Bible wasn't so beautifully complex and we just had a list of what God was like instead. Do you know, maybe we just wish God would give us his CV and we knew, yes, God's like this, that's great. And of course, really, that would help us to know about God and not help us to know him. But maybe we could have both. Maybe we could have this beautifully complex Bible that we could really enter in and know God and maybe he could also give us his CV. And you know, I actually think that within the scriptures, there is something quite close to this. Exodus 34, I think, is one of the most important scriptures for understanding who God is. Because of the context with which it's given. Because it is God himself giving a self-description of what he's like. And you'll probably know the story. Moses is up on the mountain and he basically says, God, I want to know you. I really want to know you. God, I want to see you. And God basically says, you're not going to see me. But then he speaks to him. And this is what he says to him. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generation. Now, I want you to forgive me because I'm not going to dive into this, how come God is punishing children for their parents' sins. We can talk about that after, but I think it would be a distraction now. And what I really want you to see is just that there is basically two things that God is saying. That this God is a God who is compassionate and merciful towards humanity. He is gracious to the core. And yet at the same time, he is just. He doesn't just let things slide. He doesn't brush them underneath the carpet. He doesn't let sin go unaccounted for. And these two things really, I would dare to say, are two of the key components of God's love. That he is gracious and compassionate and yet that he is just. And we really need to lay hold of these two things if we want to lay hold of the Father's forgiveness for us. And I don't know how you feel when you think about this second side, that this God doesn't let guilt go unpunished. I don't know how that makes you feel if when I talk about a God who hates sin and justly punishes it. But I think it's particularly in 
for us right now because there is a move within certain streams of the church, I don't mean this church, certain streams of the church that wants to say the sting of sin, i.e. how sin gets us, has three prongs instead of four. I'm going to explain what I mean with this wonderful diagram. <laughs> so, so, a lot of people are comfortable with the idea that sin produces effects on us. And that's straightforward. You know, think about someone with a bad drinking habit. You drink a lot and of course it affects you. You're shortening your life. You're damaging your body. Sin has an effect in itself on us. And a lot of people are very comfortable with the fact that sin produces effects on others. So think again of the drinking habit. Maybe you get drunk and then you go and say or do something that harms someone else. Or maybe just the act of going out getting drunk, you're really burdening your family who care and love for you. Sin produces effects on others. And mostly, within a certain stream of the church, people are very comfortable with the idea that sin opens the door to the devil. Do you know, sin gives the devil a foothold in our life. It gives him a bit more room to lie to us and to influence us because we're choosing his way and not God's way. We're giving him a bit of room. So large streams of the church are comfortable with these three prongs. And yet somehow it seems that the fourth prong is being pushed out of it. And that is that sin racks up a debt with God that requires punishment. So a lot, a lot of the church, maybe it's not what is being said explicitly, maybe it's what is not being said explicitly. But that these three prongs at the bottom are fine, but this top one is not. And my problem with that is Jesus speaks about it a bit too much for it to be sidelined. Think about the Lord's Prayer. Jesus te teaches us to say to our Father, forgive us for our debts. Because we all have a debt with God and we can only presume upon God's forgiveness and mercy if we want to do something about it. But maybe also, as I talk about the idea of debts, you remember another parable that Jesus told. It's the parable of Matthew 18. And you remember, there's this servant who owes a whole lot of money. It's 10,000 talents. This isn't just one person's lifetime of wage. This is more than five people. This is more than 100 people's lifetime wages. This is a lot of money, money that could never be paid back. And his master forgives him. He wipes the whole debt clean. And then what does his servant do? He goes and finds another servant who owes him money. Comparably nothing, basically. Comparably insignificant to the debt that he just had wiped. And he demands that this servant pays him back. And so the master finds out about this. And he says, you ungrateful servant. I forgave you all of this. And you've gone out asking for this small amount. You should have done what I've done for you. You should have done it for this other servant. And so the parable goes on and it says, In his anger, his master delivered to him, him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And then Jesus 
gives his comment on this parable. And this is what he says. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Do you notice that the point of the parable is not that we have a debt with God. That's the assumption of the parable. The point of the parable is that if we don't somehow find forgiveness for this, if we don't receive God's forgiveness for this debt, that there is going to be punishment. It is something that is thoroughly embedded in the teaching of our Lord Jesus. Do you know, I had a conversation once with a friend who was raised in a Christian household. He'll probably now say he's not quite sure whether he's kind of following Jesus. Um, but he has a lot of the background. He knows his Bible relatively well. And we were talking about evangelism once. And as we were talking about evangelism, he said to me, do you know, I don't like the idea that um, people should be motivated to come to Jesus or to go out and tell people about Jesus because of the bad stuff that could happen to them, i.e. kind of the, the punishment, hell, etc. And to a large extent, and based on what I know he's speaking out of, I agree with that. But I also think that we can take that thought, thought too far. Because I think Jesus, enough times, gave it as a motivation for why we should want to enter his kingdom, for why we should want to go out and tell others. Matthew 18 is an example of it. It's also another example when he sends out the 12 disciples for the first time. And what does he say to them? He says that don't fear those who can only destroy the body, but fear him who can destroy your body and your soul in Gehenna. That sounds like motivation to me. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says that we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. And then he says, therefore, knowing the fear of God, we persuade others. And he goes on to say that the love of Christ compels us. Of course, love should be our motivation. Of course, that should be our overwhelming motivation. But we can't get rid of the fact, if we truly love, then we truly want people to find forgiveness for the debt that they have that they cannot pay. Do you know one final parable, another one that is in the same vein of all of these that you remember, that Jesus goes into the house of Simon the Pharisee, and there's the woman who's the sinner, and she comes and she pours the oil on his feet, anoints him, wipes his um, feet with her hair, and in, then Jesus tells this parable because Simon, Simon's thinking, or yeah, Simon thinks that, oh, if this guy was a prophet, he would know that this woman is a sinner and he would not let her touch him. And the irony is, Jesus knows exactly what Simon's thinking. And so he tells this parable. And it's very similar. This time there's two debtors, two people who owe money. One owes 500, the other owes 50. And Jesus says to Simon, both of them have their debt forgiven. And then he asks, who do you think loves more? Who loves the, the master more? And at this point, Simon knows he's kind of cornered into something. And he doesn't want to answer, but he has to. And so he says, well, I suppose the one who owes 500. Now, of course, when Simon heard that, when he hears that parable, 
he feels trapped because when he hears that parable, he hears that the woman who's the sinner is the one who owes 500 and he's the one who owes 50. But here's the interesting thing. When Jesus told that parable to him, who do you think he would have wanted Simon to see himself as? The one who owes 500. Because that's the point of the parable, that the one who has been forgiven much, loves much. The one who knows that they have this great debt with God and it has been wiped clean. That's the one who is filled with the love of God. That's the one who can release the love of God back. So when I talk about God hating sin and justly punishing it, it's not because I want to, and I hope you guys know this about me by now, it's not because I want to hammer it down your throats. It's because Jesus himself said that we need to know this and to live in this if we want to know the weight of forgiveness and be filled with the love of God. We really need to understand it. But if we only understand that, like I said, we will be crushed by the weight of it. We need to know that God is also merciful and gracious and he longs to forgive our sin. Do you know, sometimes when, when we're seeking to understand who God is, we kind of look at the names of God, don't we? Or the characteristics of God in the Bible. Maybe we do a series on them, a series on the names of God, and it's beautiful. And I want to give you two more. I want to add two more to your list that maybe I think you probably haven't thought much about before. And it's not because I want to tell you something novel. It's because these are two names and attributes of God in Scripture that have blessed me so much. And I really just hope that I can um, share something of what they've meant for me with you. The first one is in Titus 3.4. It says, When the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, He saved us. And you think, goodness, love... Kindness, those are all great words, but we all know those ones. Those are all fruits of the Spirit. But this word, loving kindness, is actually a quite specific word. It's a word that only occurs three times in the New Testament. And when you look at it in the original Greek, it is this word, philanthropia. And maybe you hear that and you hear one of two things, philanthropia. Maybe you hear it and you hear the word philanthropist. Philanthropist, someone who goes out and does good for humanity, someone who's rich and is charitable and does a lot of good things. And in some sense, that might put you close to the right track, but here's a tip. You're not allowed to take a later word and read the meaning back into an earlier word. It's a no-no. You're not allowed to do it. So let's scrap that. The next thing you might have heard, if you know a little bit of Greek or a lot of Greek, is the two words that this word is made up of, phileo and anthropos. Phileo being love or to befriend, and anthropos being humans, humanity, man. And so you put those together and you get the lover of humanity. But it's a no-no. You're not allowed to take the two components of a word and take them apart and look at one and look at the other and say, that's what the word means. Think about the word runway or the word pineapple. You can't take the two things apart and say, yes, this is what they mean. But in this 
one case, it just seems to me that in this case, and not just to me, but it just seems that in this one case, when this word is used of God, the God who created all humanity, who created all Anthropos, this God, when this word is used to describe him, it seems like we can take these two words separately, put them together, and understand the meaning of this word. That God is the lover of humanity. Particularly when it talks about what he has done for us in Jesus, in his act of redemption. That this God, because of his love for humanity, he saved us. And I love John 3.16, but I don't know what it is. It's something about this one word that just blesses me so much more than John 3.16 ever has. That God, out of his love for humanity, he saved us. That's the first word, or title. The second one is in Romans 4. And this, in Romans 4, up to this point, Paul's been kind of making the argument that the Jews, as well as the Gentiles, they have a debt with God. They need to get it sorted out. And then he goes on to say that the Gentiles, as well as the Jews, they can have a place with God in his people. They can be accepted. They can be part of his family. And in the course of his argument, he says this, to the one who doesn't work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And it's, hot, it's, it's easy to kind of pass by it, but this title, him who justifies the ungodly, this is what he calls God. The one who justifies the ungodly, the one who makes right with himself the ungodly. The one who makes right with himself the very ones that are the exact opposite of all that he is and all that he stands for. This is the scandalous love and grace of God. That the very people who are the complete opposite of who he is, of all that he stands for, that he finds a way to make them right with himself. It's almost paradoxical that he's the one who justifies the ungodly. That is his love for humanity. But of course, there is nowhere in scripture that probably we see how scandalous the father's forgiveness is than in Luke 15, in the parable we call the prodigal son. And you guys know this parable, so I'm not going to go through it all. You know the story of the son asking for all that his father has worked hard for to give to him his inheritance and to ask for it. Now, you know how scandalous that would have been. I'm sure you've heard it before. It was so offensive. And if that was just about conceivable in the Jewish mind, he then goes and wastes it all on prostitutes and reckless living. He disrespects his father horrendously he wastes it all sin has its effect on him he ends up bankrupt he ends up hungry he ends up empty he ends up in the lowest of low place and finally in that place he manages to reach true repentance he realizes that he has sinned against god he says 
Does anyone have a slide there? He says, I've sinned against heaven and against you, Father. As he prepares his speech, as he goes through his, his speech in his mind, he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. He realizes his debt is with God. And when you think about the story and the father who represents God, it's almost as if we've been told this doubly as much. Because he says, I've sinned against heaven, which means I've sinned against God. And then I've sinned against you, Father, which means I've sinned against you, God. It's almost as if we're being hammered it twice as hard in. He realizes where his debt lies. But what he doesn't realize is Psalm 139. That behold, O Lord, even before a word is on my tongue, you know it altogether. See, the moment he reaches true repentance, the moment he reaches this moment in his heart, the Father is already out running to receive him. This Father, who, as you know, it would have been a crazy thing for a landowner, a wealthy landowner, to come and to run out to meet this son who's disrespected him. He comes this fast to meet him and to receive him, literally to throw himself on his neck and to kiss him profusely. That is the Father's forgiveness. And if that wasn't enough, as if only he forgives us and says, okay, you're in my kingdom now again, and now you need to work your way back up. No, he gives him his ring, his robe, his shoes, all of these things which say you have the privileged position in my kingdom that you always had. You are welcome, son. That is the Father's forgiveness when we reach true repentance. And he says, prepare the fattened calf, the calf that was being prepared for something else. The fact that it was fattened means that they were waiting for some other occasion, maybe a party, maybe even a sacrifice. And if you're willing to go down that train of thought and think, yes, maybe this was the sacrifice that the father was preparing, then maybe, just maybe, this story gives us a singular hint of the reason why the father could forgive his son. Because the only place that we can find this kind of forgiveness, the only place where we can hold these two tensions together is in Jesus and is in him crucified. That's the only place that it makes sense that a God can be wholly gracious and compassionate and forgiving towards us and yet justly punish sin. Because on the cross, God himself bore the punishment of our sin. He absorbed every single bit of it so that we could experience the Father's forgiveness, so that we could live in it, so that we could hold this tension together as we come together on a Sunday and worship him. This is who God is. And you know, we say this line so much, it's in the Bible so much, it's in so many songs, and depending on your translation, but my one says, the steadfast love, God, your steadfast love is everlasting. Do you know, I sometimes wonder, what if we've really got a hold of that? That God's steadfast love is everlasting. It goes on forever. Maybe we think it's wide, it's long, it goes on quite a while. And then it stops. Actually, 
It says it's everlasting. It keeps on going. No matter how far you've gone, no matter how many times you've messed up and you've turned back to God, actually, every single time, he's that same running father. Every single time you reach repentance in your heart, he's the same God willing to forgive. And so I just want to pray for us. And I want to pray that maybe some of us here have never really known true forgiveness. Maybe some of us here have thought that our sin was too great and so we haven't truly brought it to God before. And I want to pray for us. I want to pray that the Holy Spirit would really minister to us God's forgiveness. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that even in the wake of all that our sin is and all that it produces in this, in, in your creation, Lord, in your world, Lord, that your heart is to forgive and to welcome. Lord, I thank you for Jesus because Jesus is the only way that us, a group of people, could stand here knowing we're forgiven. And Lord, I want to pray if there's anyone here who is holding sin because they don't know that you can truly forgive it, Lord. Would you come by your spirit, Lord, and would you show them, Lord? Would you convince them, Lord? Would you um, melt their heart, Lord Jesus, that they would know that they can release their sin to you and that you are a father is so willing to forgive. Lord, and if we're here and we've just been living in false forgiveness, Lord, because we haven't known the weight of our sin, Lord, will you show us the weight of our sin, Lord? Not so that we can be heavy or pessimistic or weighed down in condemnation, Lord, but so that we can know the joy of forgiveness. Lord, come by your spirit. Amen. Let your living word abide in me so richly as I let your name.